Isaiah 66. We made it. Not quite. But I think we're close. Proverbs 25.2 says it's the glory of God to conceal a thing and the honor of kings to search out a matter. The first time I read that, I was a new believer, a very new believer. And I was greatly influenced by the ministry that led me to Christ. It was a, it was a prophecy-oriented ministry. And so I read that, and, and I read it in, in a context that suggested that if we scoured the word and we examined the letters and we, we stared hard at the space between the letters, we could glean clues about the, the timing of Jesus' return. We could, gain, we could gain some insight into when the rapture would happen and, and when the Antichrist would be revealed. So if we would study the word and study the world and look at the world and look at the word, we'd arrive at the truth. The, the truth of, of, of when the, the tribulation would begin. And that's not what Proverbs 25.2 is saying at all. We don't study prophecy to learn about us, right? We don't study prophecy to learn what's going to happen to us, when it's going to happen to us, what's going to happen between now and when things happen to us. No, we study prophecy to learn about Jesus. Jesus is the subject of every major prophecy, directly or indirectly. Prophecy points us to Jesus, teaches us Jesus. And as we've, we've dug into a book like Isaiah, searched it out, what we keep finding again and again is Jesus, isn't it? Isaiah has been the wonderful opportunity to get to know him better, to see him more clearly so that we can worship him more fully. That's what it's been for me. I hope that's what it's been for you. So with that by way of introduction, and, and with that sort of as our, our reestablished mindset, let's dive once more into this marvelous book. Quick reminder, while I turn to Isaiah 66, next week is Vacation Bible School, so no Wednesday evening study. I think a couple people were talking about, hey, maybe we can just come out and, and camp out under the pavilion or find some space and just pray for VBS. I think that would be marvelous. Um, but no Wednesday night study next week. The following week, I don't have a calendar in front of me, the 28th. 28. Um, Kevin Gomez is going to be back. Kevin and Aaron are going to be visiting from Northern California, and so Kevin is going to be sharing that evening. The following week is July the 5th. I wrote that one down. Uh, and, and we're going to devote that evening to prayer and worship. And then July 12th, if all goes to plan, Jeremiah. Isaiah 66 is tonight, though. Let's have some fun. Let's look for Jesus. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where's the house that you will build me and where is the place of my rest? For all of those things my hand has made and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one I will look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. 
He who kills a bull is, it's as if he slays a man. He who sacrifices a lamb, it's as if he breaks a dog's neck. He who offers a grain offering, as if he offers swine's blood. He who burns incense, as if he blesses an idol. Just as they've chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations, so I will choose their delusions and bring their fears on them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not hear, but they did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. This final chapter of Isaiah, like the other chapters, focuses on Israel. The last several chapters have focused intensely on future Israel. The promises still pending that God has made to Israel. The prayers offered from Israel, prayers of repentance, prayers for Christ's return. In these last chapters, we've seen the power of Jesus as as he returns, the power he, he wields on behalf of Israel. We've seen his presence in Israel, setting up the millennial kingdom, and the peace and prosperity of Israel in the millennial kingdom. Wait a minute, I thought we just said that Isaiah is about Jesus. It is. Who are all of those prayers about? And who are the prayers offered through? Who comes in power in answer to those prayers? Who blesses Israel with his presence? Who delivers the peace and prosperity? When we're talking about Israel, we're talking about Jesus. And what we just read, verses 1 through 4, is also all about Jesus. What we just read, it's poetic language. But if we scratch at it a little bit, what we understand is that when Jesus returns to Israel, he's going to find a temple waiting for him. And he's not going to be happy with it. The The temple that's waiting for Jesus, sometimes called the third temple, because there was Solomon's temple and then there was the rebuilt temple, the work that began under Zerubbabel, and, and then there's a temple that, that we're waiting for, a temple that will be built either before or in the first part of the tribulation, third temple, tribulation temple. How do, how do we know? Let's, let's, let's pause and ask ourselves that. We know because in the middle of the tribulation, what happens? The Antichrist enters the temple and, and, and commits the abomination of desolation. He interrupts worship and demands to be worshipped himself. Well, if worship in the temple is interrupted, the temple must exist. And one of the great questions that prophecy buffs like to wrangle about is where and when and how is this future temple going to be built? Because currently there's a mosque sitting on, on, on where we believe the location of the temple is supposed to be. Two popular theories, and there are a lot of fringe theories, but the most popular theories are, A, we've got the location wrong, or B, construction of the temple is one of the things negotiated in the treaty that Antichrist uh, uh, is, is able to negotiate, is able to arbitrate the treaty that begins the seven years of Jacob's trouble. Either way, what's interesting, for all of the energy that both Israel and the church have put towards building 
this third temple. As a young believer, I actually contributed money to, to ministries that are investigating and doing radar investigation. Is it possible there's another location? Can they build the temple without interfering with the Dome of the Rock? For all of the energy and excitement that Israel and the church both have about the, the coming temple, God doesn't share that excitement. In fact, what we just read is that he's not pleased with it. Verse 1, he, he asks, where is the house? Another translation could be, what kind of house are we talking about? What kind of house am I looking at? And verse 2, what kind of man offers sacrifice in such a house? On this one I'll look, God says, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. But the implication is that's not who's offering sacrifices. That's not who's worshiping in that third temple. We know we read so often, to obey is better than sacrifice. And God says, yeah, you're offering sacrifices but not in obedience. You're not humbling yourself. You're not loving your brother. You're not repenting of sin. You're not believing my word. And as a result, how does God look at those sacrifices? He finds them repulsive. They're offering a lamb, but, but God says it might as well be a dog. And we know that dogs weren't kosher. Dogs are, are the very definition of an unclean animal. You, know, you, you offer, offer an, an ox, you might as well be murdering a man. You're burning incense, but you might as well be burning it to idols. Israel's doing, here in the, just before the tribulation or early in the tribulation, Israel's doing what Israel does best. What, let's be honest, what people do best. Celebrating their own righteousness. Taking pride in their own holiness and not God's. So verse 4, God says, I'll let them have what they think they want. I'll let them taste the fruit of their own self-righteousness. We'll come back to that in a moment. The Holy Spirit keeps going. Question, is that how God views all of Israel? Paul's not the only one who can anticipate a question. The Holy Spirit does it too, because Paul writes under the influence of the Holy Spirit. But no, that's not how God sees all of Israel. And we have to remember that from the midpoint of the tribulation on, we have to be really careful. We have to be diligent to parse. Is God talking to the believing remnant of Israel? That remnant that's going to seek God and pray to God, repent of their sin, and evidence that, that poor and contrite heart that God is looking for? Or is he speaking of the greater nation Israel? Be careful when, when we read scripture to, to parse to which Israel is God speaking. After he says, verses 1 through 4, what he says to the nation who's persisting in arrogance, God turns his attention now to the remnant, those that flee the abomination of desolation the way that Jesus told them to. And he says, I'm not talking to you. Verse 5, hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. So, so right there, we know that this is a different set of people. Your brethren who hated you, who cast you out for my name's sake, said, let the Lord be glorified that we might see your joy, but they shall be ashamed. 
Oh, the sound of noise from the city, a voice from the temple, the voice of the Lord who fully repays his enemies. So God is speaking to the brethren who were cast out. There's a couple ways to read this. The most straightforward, I think, is to glance back at Isaiah 63, verse 16, where God talks... Uh, is that the word that I want? Yeah, this is the remnant of Israel speaking, praying, doubtless you are our father. Isaiah 63, verse 16. Though Abraham was ignorant of us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer from everlasting is your name. So there in their prayer, the believing remnant of Israel differentiates themselves from political Israel, from the nation Israel. And, and, and they acknowledge that they're, they're exiles. So, so going back to our text, going back to verses 5 and 6, we see this, this schism, and we see apparently unbelieving Israel. Not, not only does, does this believing remnant flee, but the unbelievers cast them out. The believing remnant says, okay, that's the abomination of, of desolation. We've got to run. And the unbelievers say, yeah, you better run. How does that make sense? Remember what we read just a moment ago in verse 4. I will choose their delusions and bring their fears on them. A little bit of speculation here on my part. But I think the delusion that God is referencing in verse 4 is the delusion that Antichrist is really the Messiah that Israel has been seeking. Most of Israel has, has stopped seeking, has stopped waiting. But when Antichrist appears, he's going to claim to be the Mashiach Nagid of Israel. Remember, anti in this context doesn't mean against Christ. Anti means false Christ or counterfeit Christ. So I, I think what's in view here is Israel getting the Messiah she thinks she wants. Messiah who's a conqueror, who's a powerful political and military figure, a slayer of foes. And when that Antichrist shows up and demands worship, Israel will say, well, yeah, that makes sense because you're the Christ. So when Antichrist demands to be worshipped in the temple, he's not going to say, worship me instead of God. He's going to say, worship me, for I am God. And the minority is going to say, no, no, you're not. We better run. And the unbelievers who enter into that delusion, who embrace that delusion, will join with Antichrist in saying, yeah, you better run. But God promises in the end, verse 5, it's going to be those that persecute the remnant, both Jew and Gentile, who are the persecutors of that humble and contrite remnant, that will be ashamed, literally that will be put to shame. And verse 6 is the sound of God's fury being poured out on his enemies, even the enemies that are worshiping a false Messiah in that third temple. That, I think, is the most straightforward reading. Now, minority view, 
and, and I wouldn't mention it other than where y'all were last week with Dakota in Obadiah, there's a view among some that brethren in verse 5 doesn't, ret- doesn't refer to unbelieving Israel, but rather refers to Ishmael or Edom or both. And verse 6 is about the fury that God pours out on them. Last week in Obadiah, you read about God's fury being poured out on Edom. In Obadiah and Zechariah uh, 14.3, uh, you know, God's fury against his enemies. I, I don't think that's the best reading because it sort of interrupts the flow. God was just talking about the temple, and, and so that would be a, a, a sort of a change of subject. I wouldn't bring it up, like I said, if it wasn't for the connection to to where y'all were last night in Obadiah. Whether, whether brethren are, are unbelief, is unbelieving Israel or Edom, or it, it, it's, God's fury is being poured out on both at the same time, is the reality. But alongside that destruction, that vengeance, that recompense, we also see, verse 7, rebirth. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came, she delivered a male child. Who's heard of such a thing? Who's seen such a thing? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day, or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. I have a friend who was an EMT for a number of years in a community that had a volunteer fire department, volunteer rescue squad, and he had a lot of of really amazing stories from that time. One of his stories is that he delivered a baby from a woman who didn't think she was pregnant and and even while she was in active labor was was denying that that was what was happening sort of what's happening here is is the nation is reborn in an instant almost before they the labor started even there was the birth and many, many commentators, many prophecy buffs will point to 1948 as at least a partial fulfillment of that because in 1948, Israel was reborn as a nation in a day. But there's a greater fulfillment that's yet future. But if we're reading carefully, that makes us shake our heads a little bit. Wait, 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 wait. There were labor pains. Jesus talks about the labor pains. Matthew 24, 8. He talks about the beginning of sorrows. He talks about the early pain before active labor begins, the, the things that are happening in the first half of the tribulation. Jesus uses the metaphor of labor to talk about the tribulation. So how can the Holy Spirit here be talking about a nation born before the labor starts? When we come across a contradiction or an apparent contradiction in Scripture, a good first move is to put Jesus in the middle of it. Glory of kings to seek out a matter, right? What happens if we put Jesus in the middle of this? Look at verse 7 again. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came, she delivered what? A male child. Jesus came before the tribulation before the labor a child was born and he was rejected 
But as soon as Zion is in labor, and here's what we have to understand. Jesus, Matthew 24, 8, describes the first half of the tribulation as the beginning of sorrows, the early twinges before active labor begins. Active labor, the great tribulation, is the second three and a half years. As soon as that happens, as soon as that act of labor kicks in, there's a remnant that recognizes instantly that something's going on. And in that moment, I think the Holy Spirit is saying, Israel is reborn. Or from that point, it's inevitable that Israel will be reborn from that believing remnant. And, and, and God's question, verse 9, is, yeah, why wouldn't it be? Verse 9, shall I bring to the time of birth and not cause delivery? Am I going to make Israel go through labor, go through the tribulation, and not fulfill the promise that, 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 that I said was waiting at the end, says the Lord? Shall I who cause delivery shut up the womb? I'm not going to let Israel go into labor and not let the nation, my people, be reborn. This is why, and, and, I, and I know that I've been harping on this for a while, but this is why supersessionism is so tragic. Supersessionism, the idea that the church has superseded or replaced Israel. Replacement theology, if you prefer that term. It's just wrong. But more than that, worse than that, it misrepresents who God is. It denies what we just read, that his mercy triumphs over judgment. Our summer youth camp is coming up. We do it in conjunction with, I think it's now six or eight different churches from Kansas, Oklahoma, and, and Texas. I'm going to be one of the teachers this year. And uh, the, the pastor who's coordinating it reached out to me this week. Hey, I just... I want to touch base on, on you know, what the Lord is, is, is speaking to everybody, what's on your heart to teach. And I said, well, I've, I've, as I've prayed about it, I've really been burdened to, to teach about shame. The theme of the conference is the, the pearl of great price, the, the, the pearl that God um, you know, paid, paid, paid everything for. And I, I said, it's been on my heart to talk about how God not only paid for our guilt, but our shame and the pastor said, oh, that's an awesome idea. And I said, well, it should be. It was God's. Um, but he said, no, so, so many teens think that, that they're beyond help and beyond hope and beyond forgiveness because they carry the weight of this shame with them. And I said, it's not just teens. The condemnation of the enemy speaks loudly to all of us. And, and here's the thing. So often the church doesn't help. So often the church, I think, pours gasoline on that fire. The church is, becomes an unwitting ally of our adversary because we teach things like Israel is beyond forgiveness. Because, because follow the logic. If there's no hope for Israel, then there's a set of people or entities for whom there is no hope, for whom there is no forgiveness. And, and even if that teen or that adult sitting in that church has, has never heard teaching one about Israel or supersessionism or any of that, the idea is still there. It's, it's in the air supply. That there's a limit, that there's a boundary 
that there's a max to God's mercy. You know, and, and other teachings are, are obviously problematic as well. And for the same reason, anything, anything that limits the mercy of God play, plays right into the enemy's hands. Helps him, helps his whispers of condemnation speak louder to our, to our ears, to our hearts. And, and God just reminded us, no, it's just not true. There is mercy always and for everyone who repents. And on the other side of that repentance, verse 10, on the other side of the rebirth, we see mercy abound, we see grace abound, we see peace and prosperity. Rejoice with Jerusalem, verse 10, and be glad with her, all you who love her. Rejoice for joy with her, all you who mourn for her, that you might feed and be satisfied with the consolation of her bosom, that you might drink deeply and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I'll extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. Then you shall be fed. On her sides you will you'll be carried, and be dandled on her knees, as one whom his mother comforts. So I will comfort you, and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. When you see this, your heart shall rejoice, and your bones shall flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants, and his indignation to his enemies." A lot of this we've talked about in recent weeks, especially in chapter 65. Notice verse 14, though, where, where we read heart, understand that that is typifying or pointing to soul, to our inner self. Bones point to or typify our outer self, our flesh. And so what the Holy Spirit is saying is that Israel will prosper in both regards. They'll prosper spiritually in the presence of Jesus. They'll prosper physically. They'll be enjoying unprecedented wealth and peace and safety. And obviously one byproduct of that will be purity. Verse 15, For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword the Lord will judge all flesh, and the slain of the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify themselves and purify themselves to go to the gardens after an idol in the midst, eating swine's flesh and the abomination and the mouse shall be consumed together, says the Lord. We can't prosper spiritually in the presence of idolatry. We can't prosper spiritually, not fully, not the way God intends, not the way his love desires. If we persist in idolatry, how do I know? If it were otherwise, Jesus in his return would not zealously destroy every artifact, every remnant of idolatry. Teaching at a conference in August, and the theme of that conference is practical lessons from the prophets. And I've only started to pray about, about what the Lord would have me share there. But reading, reading, reading this passage again and again the last few days, I might just preach on that, those last couple of verses. Because as important as it is, to lay hold of and rejoice in and remind each other about the grace of God, we have to remember 
that God is also zealous for purity. If it were possible for us to worship in spirit and in truth and have our idols too, we wouldn't have read what we just read. Grace doesn't mean that sin doesn't hinder our worship. Things I'm praying about. Verse 18. For I know their works and their thoughts. It shall be that I'll gather together all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. I shall set a sign among them, and those among them who escape I'll send to the nations, to Tarshish and Pol and Lud, who draw the bow, and to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands afar, who have not heard my fame nor seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles." And then they shall bring all your, your brethren for an offering to the Lord out of all nations, on horses and on chariots and on litters and on mules and on camels to my holy mountain, Jerusalem. As the children of Israel bring an offering and a clean vessel into the house of the Lord, and I'll take some of them for priests and Levites, says the Lord. The rescued of Israel, specifically the rescued, become the rescuers. Israel... Believing Israel, repentant Israel, rejoicing Israel, becomes a nation of evangelists. To Tarshish, which we can debate, is that England, is that Spain, Western Europe somewhere, Pol, Somalia, Ethiopia perhaps, Lud most likely points to Turkey, Tubal, Russia, Javan, Greece. I... And, and, and I think that those, those identities in this context are probably less important than in other contexts. Elsewhere in Scripture, we might, we might work harder to pin down the exact geography. But here, I think the Holy Spirit is speaking more connotatively than denotatively. I think the idea is, is that the believers of Israel are going to go on in every direction to evangelize the Gentile world, to evangelize the nations. Question, though... When does this happen? Who needs to be evangelized? Because we know only believers enter the kingdom, right? On the other side of the sheep and goat judgment, there are only believers. So this, uh, did we just jump decades in the future and, and is, is Israel evangelizing the children of Gentiles, because only believers enter, but they, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, children are born with free will, they have to make their own decision about Jesus. That may well be true. That's the shortest distance between two points, probably. I've, I've got another thought, and, and Wednesday night alert, I've never heard anybody else teach this ever, so I'm probably wrong. But this is the second or third time, if you've been with us, through, through Isaiah. This is the second or third time that we've come across a conundrum like this that leaves me wondering what exactly happens in the 75 days? What 75 days, Patrick? Three and a half years from the abomination of desolation, the midpoint of the tribulation, to the end, to the defeat of Antichrist. And that's well established. We can we can we can track that down a bunch of different places, a bunch of different ways. 1,260 days. But Daniel 12, verses 11 and 12, from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,000 
290 days. So after Antichrist is defeated, there's another 30 days that it takes to remove the abomination of desolation from the temple. But there's more. The next verse, blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. So after 1260, after the end of the tribulation and the defeat of Antichrist, it's 30 days until the abomination of desolation is removed from the temple, and another 45 days until those who survive enter into blessing. And, and, and I, I think most commentators agree the blessing referred to is the millennial kingdom. What happens during those 75 days? It's a study unto itself. There are some things that we know that happen. Antichrist being, being cast into the lake of fire is, is one. Sheep and goat judgment is another. But is it possible that that 75 days is a time of evangelism? I don't know. I wonder. I've never read anybody else wonder. But the you know, joy of kings to, to look into a thing. We're unsure about the timing. Don't, don't, don't take that as, as, as any kind of fact. That's speculation. But we know evangelism happens. We know Jewish missionaries are sent out, verse 20 and 21. We know they're successful. And we know that, that the Gentiles who do enter the kingdom worship at the temple, even serve in the temple. We talked about this back in Isaiah 56. The foreigner and the eunuch were, were not allowed in the temple in Old Testament time. They will be welcomed in the temple. And, and Gentiles not only get to enter, not only get to worship, but some will serve as priests. This being the millennial temple that Jesus constructs. Ezekiel 37. God speaking to Israel, or speaking of Israel, I'll make a covenant of peace with them, Ezekiel 37, 26, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. The nations will also know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. So on the other side of Jeremiah, there's even more waiting for us in Ezekiel. But, but what we just glimpsed, and what we've seen again and again through Isaiah, is that the kingdom is going to have a distinctly Jewish flavor. Verse 22, For as the new heavens and the new earth, the reconstructed heavens and new earth, which I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me. So we see there even in, in the, that pair of verses, the Sabbath referred to as a day. Worship uh, spoken of as happening in a place. Elsewhere we read about some at least of the feasts being celebrated. Zechariah 14, the Feast of Tabernacles. Sacrifices will resume in the, in the millennium. If you understand that, explain it to me sometime. 
this is not the same as the Levitical system. And, and when we get into Ezekiel, or when, read it on your own. You don't have to wait for us to do it together. Ezekiel makes clear, this is not the law of Moses. This is the law of the kingdom. And it's similar in some respects, but it's not the same. Again, Ezekiel, your best reference. Don't wait for me. This is, this is, this is Israeli. This is Jewish in character but it's an idealized Israel. It's a sanctified Israel. It's an Israel that acts justly and loves mercy and walks humbly before their Lord, Micah 6.8. And as they do, they enjoy the Lord's presence. They enjoy the Lord's provision. They enjoy all of the blessings that come with that. As opposed to verse 24, they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. They shall be in abhorrence to all flesh. Does this mean that in the millennial kingdom, people will have some visibility of hell? Maybe. Here's another possibility that, that I think Dakota referenced last week. In the millennial kingdom, Edom and Babylon burn with with what's described as everlasting fire fire and brimstone isaiah 34 you reference for edom the 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 unquenchable fire of babylon after jesus returns we read about isaiah 13 14 revelation 18 19 why if, if God is, is substantially reversing the curse and renewing the world why does he allow fire pits with, 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 with flesh burning in unquenchable fire to exist in this, in this relative paradise? Well, what's the purpose of the millennial kingdom? I mean, to glorify God, because the purpose of all creation is to glorify God. But specifically, if, 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 we, if, if we look at the millennial kingdom, why, what is God trying to do with that? Well, I'm sure a lot of things, but fast forward to the end of it. Fast forward to the end of the thousand years, Revelation 20, Satan gets left off his leash. Satan's chained for a thousand years. At the end of the millennium, Satan is, is let loose and he promptly finds allies in the world who are willing to join him in battling again against Jesus. Spoiler alert, he loses. <laughs> but what does all of that prove? It proves the world's excuses are lame. Every excuse you've ever heard or, or, or given yourself for not believing God or not following God, all I can't see him. You can't prove he's real. You can't know for sure that the Bible is true. Hell isn't real. A loving God wouldn't, wouldn't send anybody to hell. And if there is a hell, I'd rather be there with my friends. It sounds like more fun. Now, all of those mistruths and, and untruths are going to be taken away. The millennium proves them alike because for, for a century, people won't have to walk by faith. They'll be able to walk by sight. There's Jesus. There's the consequence of not believing and following Jesus. And still, people will rebel. Not because their environment wasn't ideal. Not because they didn't have all of the information. Not because they weren't able to take that step of faith. But because they were unwilling 
to let Jesus triumph over their sin nature. So what about us? Do we believe? You know, as, as, as we close our Bibles for the evening and close, I mean, what's, what a wonderful study in Isaiah this has been. You know, as we, as we, as we close, I, you know, there's, 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 there's that sort of self-imposed pressure. Okay, we need a big, bold, sweeping, all-encompassing application. I don't know. I, I, I think that the Holy Spirit is taking care of big and sweeping and all-encompassing. That's been the whole book. I think the question that the Lord leaves us with is actually very, very simple. Do we believe? Because unwillingness to believe to, to open our eyes to see what God has for us has consequences. That's how God closed the book of Isaiah. Unbelief has consequences. Belief has consequences. Willingness to believe has consequences. Peace and joy and eternal, you know, in God's presence for eternity. What do we believe? What are we believing? Because believing in what God has done has everything to do with, with what we think God will do. And, this, and the strength of our conviction, our belief in what God will do, has everything to do with what we believe God is doing, present tense, in our lives today. Isaiah is a book of miracles. The whole Bible is really but Isaiah is a book of miracles, past miracles, future miracles. And again and again, the Holy Spirit urged Israel, expect more miracles. I'm not done. God says over and over, I am still who I have ever been. I am still in the miracle business. God is unchanging. God urges Israel to expect miracles. Why? Because God said so. Why should we believe you, God? Because of past miracles. Because I've never failed. Are we expecting miracles in our lives? Are we willing to be miracles? You know, passing from death to life when we first believe, that's a miracle. Amen? But passing more and more into Christ-likeness, yielding more and more to the Holy Spirit. God's ongoing sanctification in us, that's a miracle too. We're not doing it. Anybody here getting closer to God in your own strength? It's a miracle. Sanctification is a miracle. Are we expecting miracles? Are we willing to be miracles? God again and again says to Israel, remember the Exodus? Remember how awesome that was? I'm the same God and I'm going to do it again. We've had our own Exodus. We've, we've been delivered out of our own Egypt, out of our own sin. Do we hear the voice of the Lord reminding us, hey, I'm the same God. And I want to do it again. Will you let me? I don't know, Patrick, sometimes I doubt. Yeah, me too. God hasn't struck any of us dead yet. Does God ever, does Jesus ever rebuke anyone for doubting? No. 
He doesn't say stop doubting. He says, look. He says, open your eyes. What if we did that? What if we we looked at our lives and said, yeah, that's a miracle? What if we looked at the lives of the people around us and said, miracle, 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 miracle? What if we looked at, at the everyday miracles and the extraordinary miracles that God privileges us to witness? What if we looked at his word, which is in and of itself a miracle? And, and we said, man, it's the joy of God to conceal a matter. Of, it's, the, it's the joy of kings to seek it out. And, and, and so we kept looking and kept proving and kept finding reasons to believe. And kept believing. I think we'd keep seeing miracles. Lord, thank you that you are the miracle doer and the miracle promiser, and the miracle deliverer. Open our eyes, Lord, to who you are, that we might open our hearts to everything you want to do, everything you want to be to us. The joy that's waiting, the peace that's promised, the presence that's available. We love you, Lord.